Okay, I'm going to talk about getting your head on straight about interacting with children. I spend a good bit of time with this up front at the beginning of uh, every class in classroom management discipline because uh, middle class Americans, and that's what we are, uh, if you're in college you, you have middle class values and aspirations. Uh, even if your background's not middle class, even if your income at the moment is not middle class, that's the, uh, the worldview you're coming from. And we have certain problems sort of understanding the relationship between adults and children just because of some of the mythology of, of our culture. So I'm going to talk about getting your head on straight about interacting with children. Um, I got this photograph out of, the, out of a Microsoft clip art gallery. If you can't see it too clearly, it is presumably a family. There is a, a daughter, a father, a son, and a mother. That's how we are going to read this picture culturally. I always ask students to spend some time looking at this iconic photograph of a family and telling me what they see in here, how realistic it is, and whether it matches their family. Students spend some time looking at it, and then they start telling me some things like, the family is too perfect. Uh, some cultural, first of all, they're white, definitely Caucasian. There is a man, a woman. There is a boy, a girl. Four people. What they've got down here for their picnic, if you can see it, is a pitcher, and it looks like a glass pitcher, could be plastic, and it's got a white liquid in it that's milk. This little boy is holding a glass of milk. There's a glass of milk here. Uh, a pile of oranges, uh, something in here, it's hard to see what it is. And I always ask people, do you have milk and a fruit on your picnics? And they say no. Of course, they always have, uh, you know, cola, pop, whatever. Also, the two females are blonde, the two males are brunette. And this is a very, very old uh, stereotype. You can find this in the temples in Egypt. Uh, wherever, whenever a couple is presented, like the pharaoh and his, uh, his queen, the male is invariably darker skinned and the female has light skin. That's a very old stereotype. Goes back to the time when uh, a higher class woman was fair skinned because it meant, and wanted to be fair skinned because it meant she didn't work outside. That cultural stereotype changed in about the past, um, well, between my mother's, my grandmother's generation and mine, when the darker skin or a tan for a Caucasian woman meant she had leisure time and could lie out in the sun by the pool. So class stereotypes and what we have here is a family that's not very realistic. So we're going to try to get some realism in our ideas about adults and children. Move on beyond some of the stereotypes. This is not the perfect family or if they are the perfect family they don't exist many places. There are three dimensions of an adult's interaction with a child. I'm going to go through these one by one, and we're going to talk about what each one of them means and how you put them together in interacting with children. The first dimension 
is acceptance and warmth. Now, um, in our culture, we're very familiar with this. We have some very firm beliefs about how uh, adults ought to be warm and loving towards children. Uh, they ought to accept them. Uh, a lot of, of love, warmth, touch, that sort of thing. This particular dimension has two negative ends. The positive end is acceptance and warmth. The negative end, you have rejection and coldness or hostility and harshness. And you can obviously in a relationship have some of all of these. But there's, there's sort of a cold, neglectful negative end and a actively hostile, angry, uh, sort of hot end. And obviously kids can get both of these. The second dimension is firmness. This is the one that gives middle class folks the most trouble and we'll talk more about this later. The opposite of firmness is leniency, being too lenient, too loose with the child. So firmness versus leniency is the second dimension. Third dimension is respecting autonomy, respecting the child's autonomy versus being very controlling. So our third dimension, respecting autonomy versus being highly controlling. Accepting and warm, lenient, respect autonomy, rejecting and cold, firm, high control. Now the reason I line these up this way is that one of the biggest problems, particularly for pre-service teachers, is getting these things lined up right. This happens to be wrong. Okay? Accepting and warm, lenient, respecting autonomy is the most common mistake middle and upper class middle folks, upper middle class folks make in raising a child. What's wrong is this one right here, lenient. If you raise a child with a lot of acceptance and warmth, a lot of lenience, and a lot of respect for the child's autonomy, you're going to get a child pretty quickly who has major problems and gives other people major problems. I always ask my students, particularly my um, experienced teachers, if they've seen a middle or upper middle class child who's been raised too leniently, much too loosely, they always say yes, they always shake their head, and when I ask them, what is that child like? They use words like obnoxious, self-centered, says whatever comes into his mouth, talks constantly, thinks he should be the center of attention all the time, disrespectful of other people, on and on and on and on. Again, a child who is raised too leniently, with a lot of acceptance and warmth, and often a lot of material goods, uh, high respect for the child's independence and autonomy, you get that kind of child. Typically that middle or upper middle class child who's raised too leniently has problems later in life. They often start fairly early. Uh, problems in, in the teens, uh, sex, drugs, alcohol, you name it. Uh, they may wind up in uh, rehab. They sometimes do 
okay, they recover because they have a lot of parental support and they have a lot of money behind them. So they will often have better outcomes than a lower class child with the same problems. Um, sometimes they also become adults. Um, life sort of beats the stuffing out of them and they can grow up to be good, decent people. Unfortunately, some of them never get that lesson in a way that takes hold and you will find them being very uh, troubled and or troublesome adults. So leniency, not good for children. Now the way this ought to line up is this way. Best way to raise a child, best way to educate a child is with high acceptance and warmth, firmness, and we'll talk more about firmness. Notice it doesn't say meanness, it says firmness, and respect for the child's autonomy. So keep these three in mind. This is the way to do it. Okay, the only thing you can do worse to a child than be lenient is to be consistently inconsistent on any or all of the three dimensions. Inconsistency really tears children up. This is one reason the children of substance abusers have so many problems. Um, for example, if your father is a, uh, an alcoholic, when he gets up in the morning, he's hung over, he feels really bad, he's uh, horribly grouchy, uncommunicative, uh, and uh, angry and everybody in the family knows to stay away from him. Then whenever in the day he starts, uh, he gets a little food after a while, hangover lets up, he starts drinking again, he may become quite happy and cheerful. He may feel good. He may want to hug his babies and love on them and, and play with them and be nice to them. So suddenly the angry, very angry, hostile uh, father has become a sweet, loving, maybe too loving, silly, uh, kind man. And then as he continues to drink, he becomes more and more uh, incoherent. And often he will start picking up anger, rage, fueled by the, the alcohol. And, you know, at midnight he's chasing the family through the house with an axe tearing up furniture and uh, destroying doors and the police are called and it's a giant uh, uproar. This kind of inconsistency is what really does the most damage to kids, just yanking them around. Now I'm going to talk, spend some time talking about what is firm. Now remember, we're middle class folks, we have trouble figuring out what's firm. We're so afraid that we're going to be harsh with children, negative with children, that we may not be firm enough. So I'm going to spend some time trying to get us centered on what is firm as opposed to being harsh. And I'm going to go through some characteristics of firmness as opposed to being harsh. First of all, it's important to have no anger or, if you must be angry, and sometimes we can't help being angry, controlled anger. So what is controlled anger? 
Think if your mother ever talked to you through her teeth. When she would clench her teeth, and maybe she would speak in a very quiet voice, and sometimes she would call your whole name, all three names, Mary Sue Smith. If you don't get in this house right now and eat your supper, da 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 When your mother spoke to you, you knew she meant it. You better get in the house right now and you better get in there and eat supper. Controlled anger uh, is, instead of being explosive, Kid, kid knows you're angry, but he also knows and he can tell that you're keeping it under control. Um, nothing. Uh, every parent, every teacher has problems with anger. Children do all sorts of things that push your button. It is very important to respond without anger or, if you cannot, with controlled anger. And you have a third option. If you're going to be angry and you're going to have trouble controlling it, very often you can postpone. Deal with whatever it is. Do something to postpone. And we may talk more later about postponing and deal with it later when you either have gotten rid of your anger or you can control it. So no anger or controlled anger. That's what a major difference between firm and harsh. No sarcasm. Okay, remember we're thinking about how to be firm and not harsh. No sarcasm. Um, it's often hurtful. Uh, it, by the way, does not uh, do very well in the local culture in uh, East Tennessee here. If you want to compare people in New York City with people in East Tennessee, you may understand in New York City sarcasm is an art form. In East Tennessee, it's often considered very rude uh, and obnoxious behavior. So no sarcasm when you deal with kids. Deal with them straight. No abusive language. Okay? Uh, no swear words. Uh, keep those things out of, your, out of your language. No names. No insults. Dummy. Idiot. Okay? So we're talking about firm as opposed to harsh. No names. No abusive language. No insults. You're stupid. You're just like your father. Okay, whatever. No insults. No yelling. Very common mistake parents and teachers make is yelling at kids or raising their voice. Uh, sometimes yelling is subjective. It's very common for uh, a child to say, she yelled at me. And the adult said, I didn't yell at her. What happened is that the adult was just so forceful and so loud that it fell to the child that she was being yelled at. So no yelling. Keep the volume of your voice normal. Uh, some of the most effective disciplinarians, both parents and teachers, actually will lower the volume of their voice when they're dealing with a child who's not behaved appropriately. Um, uh, very, very often that helps give the uh, message to the child, you're in trouble. Okay, no yelling. 
I always ask practicing teachers, how many of you work down the hall from a screamer? And the hands will go up. And we'll talk about behavior in the screamer's classroom. Do the kids in the screaming teacher's classroom behave better? No. Why not? Yelling doesn't work. You know, aside from the fact that it's obnoxious and bothers everybody else and makes you look bad, yelling at kids does not work. If you yell at children to control their behavior, what happens is they get immune to it, whether they're your own children or the children you're teaching. They get immune to it. It has the, the volume has no effect on them. And so to get their attention and to take you seriously, you have to yell louder. And then they get used to that because that's your normal way of, of interacting with them. And lo and behold, to get their attention, you have to yell louder. If you go in a classroom, in a school in, let's say, September or October, and you hear a teacher yelling, by April or May, if she survives, she's going to be bringing down the walls of Jericho with that noise. No yelling. Keep your voice volume down, either with your own kids or with kids you're teaching. It doesn't work. Don't yell. Save yelling for an emergency. Kid's going to get hurt. Or the kid's doing something so horrible he's going to hurt someone else. Save yelling for the real emergencies. No physical stuff. Now, I'm not talking about corporal punishment here. That's a different issue, and we'll talk about it later. I'm talking about nasty stuff like grabbing a kid by the ear, pulling his hair, shoving, shoving him around, giving him a push. Um, if you want him, that girl to come in the house, you go out and you grab her arm and you drag her in. Or you get behind her at the door and you put your hand on her back and shove her across the threshold. No physical stuff. Uh, there may be times, for example, with a child who's lying on the floor having a temper tantrum and you need to get him out of the way, you can pick him up and haul him around. But I'm talking about just not shoving, pushing, pinching kids, pulling a hair, grabbing that ear and dragging them in. No physical stuff. Listen to the child. Now, when you're in some kind of confrontation with the child or the child doesn't want to do something, some of them will argue, 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 argue. Again, middle class folks uh, often tend to raise young lawyers. They will uh, teach their children that the way to get to do what you want to do is out-argue your mama or your teacher. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about, not letting the kid go on and on and on, but at least listening to the child. You don't have to agree with what he says, but give him a chance to have his say. Being polite to kids. Adults are often terribly, terribly rude to children. They will get all over children for not saying please and thank you, and they will not do that to kids themselves. Or you will see um, in a school setting, two teachers standing out on the front porch talking. A kid comes up, he's got a heavy book pack on, and he's got an armful of stuff, in his, and he comes to the door, if that was an adult, the teachers would open the door for the adult. They'll keep right on talking and let the kid, you know, do whatever he can to get inside the door. 
So showing children politeness and consideration. Now, do not necessarily expect kids to be polite to you if you are polite to them. That doesn't always happen. And when it doesn't, you, you know, you can deal with it. But be polite to children. Persistent. Um, particularly smart kids with, uh, uh, who are very strong and willful will learn that if they resist and disobey and keep on resisting, eventually adults will get tired of dealing with them, go away and leave them alone. So it's very important with kids, again, either your own or kids you're, or your uh, teaching, to be persistent in getting, insisting on appropriate behavior. Don't be an adult who runs into a little bit of resistance from a kid and you go away. Persistent. It's important to get the behavior you need. So we're going to be persistent with kids. Focus on the adult's issue. Very often when you have a disciplinary interaction with a child, child will go off on a tangent. Uh, all kinds of tangents. One may be, well, you let him do it, or you like him better than me, or look at what he, something. Um, any kind of distraction. Kids are very clever about it. It's important for adults to focus on their issues in behavioral and disciplinary interactions with kids. What is your issue? That also means you need to know what your issue is. Is your issue it's time for supper and you need to come in here now and sit down and eat? If it is, then you deal with that. You don't let the kid get you distracted on, off, on some other issue. And you also don't get off onto issues like um, and your hair looks really bad too. Focus on your issue. What do you want? What's, what's there at the time? If you're a teacher, your issue is you need to sit down and get busy. And you stay with that issue. Focused on the adult's issue. Now, we're going to switch and talk about firm but not lenient. How do adults be firm without going too far the other way and being lenient? Clear, firm voice. I always advise pre-service teachers to practice developing a clear, firm voice that will stop a culprit in his tracks. So work on a clear, firm voice. Uh, many of my traditional undergraduates are young women, uh, 19, 20, 21 years old. They're very soft-spoken, meek and mild. They've never raised their voice to anyone in their life. If you raise your voice at them, they'll cry. And they, you're just going to have to toughen up and develop that clear, firm teacher voice. Now remember, it doesn't have to be loud. It has to be clear and firm. Um, I ask my students often if their mother had a noise that made them stop in their tracks. And very often it was something like your mother pointed her finger at you and she said something like, eh. And you knew that when your mother pointed that finger at you and said, eh, you better freeze. Whatever it was, you know, like jumping off something or climbing up on something or hitting somebody, you better stop. 
uh, teachers can use that that uh, noise also. It's real good. But that sense of when I speak, you better listen to me. That's what you want with kids. And again, no yelling. That clear, firm teacher voice. Eye contact. Um, if a child doesn't want to make eye contact with you, I recommend that you not force it. And some people will, teachers and parents. If it's your own kid and you want eye contact, okay, put that into your um, interaction with the kid that you require eye contact. Some kids in special ed, eye contact may be part of their uh, planned educational program. Okay, but generally in life, if the kid doesn't want to look at you, don't force it. And I have seen teachers do that. I have seen teachers do things like if the child is looking down, they'll reach out, put their hand under the kid's chin and tip the face up. Don't do that. Um, I've actually seen teachers get down, bend over, and look up so that they can look in the child's face. Don't do that. But make eye contact if you can. Talk to the kid while looking at him. Use the kid's name. Names are very important. Uh, when you're dealing with a kid who's got a behavioral issue or you're trying to communicate something very clearly, use the child's name which means you need to know the child's name. I recommend that teachers know their students' names just as quickly as possible. Learn those names. Learn the names of kids who are just around your classroom up and down the hall. Learn kids' names. Use their names. It communicates a couple of things. I know who you are. People often take it as a sign that you know who they are as an individual. You care a little bit about them. You care enough to learn their name and use it. Also, people behave better when they feel they are not anonymous. Uh, they're not members of the crowd. Whatever they do, they will be recognized. People behave better when they're not anonymous. Use children's names. Again, be polite. Be polite. Why not? Persistent. Again. We're not going to be lenient. We're not going to give up. We're going to be persistent. Once in a while, I have a pre-service teacher who will say to me something like, well, you know, I really don't want to make children do anything they don't want to do. At that point, anyone who's ever raised a child or taught school will fall out of their chair laughing. Children have to do what they want, don't want to do all the time. It is part of life. If you're going to raise them, if you're going to teach them, and you're going to be successful, you have to stay in there and make sure they do what they need to do for all sorts of reasons, regardless of whether they want to do it or not. My favorite example that I give is that it took me 15 years to teach my son after he took a shower to not dump the wet towels on his bed so that they would soak through his sheets and the mattress. I tried every technique, every behavioral intervention, everything known to humankind, and it did not work. But I didn't give up. And then one day, when he was about 15, I went in the bathroom and saw this kind of crumpled towel kind of shoved back over the towel bar. And I looked at it and I thought, must be a mistake. 
must be an error or some kind of fluke. But I didn't say anything. And then a little while later, I noticed another towel shoved back over the towel bar. And gradually the towels came to be kind of folded, semi-folded and straight, and put back over the towel bar. So do not be persistent. Some of these things take 18, 20, 25 years. So don't give up, okay? Be persistent. No nonsense. Effective parents, effective teachers have an air that says, hey, you know, I don't put up with nonsense. And again, that's not mean, harsh, cruel, rejecting to say to a child or to communicate with a child, hey, you know, I just don't put up with nonsense. Come on, nah, not in my class, no. Okay, firm. No nonsense. I don't put up with nonsense. Children are permitted to disagree. That's part of being firm without being lenient. Children can disagree. They can say that they disagree. They can tell you what they disagree about. What they can't do is scream, yell, stomp, pitch a fit, throw things, run out of the room, slam the door, hit the dog, break this, break that. Kids can disagree. You don't need to do what they want to do. I'm, you know, you don't think you should go to bed at 9 o'clock. I understand that. That's fine. Bedtime's still 9 o'clock. Okay? Kids are free to disagree. They don't get punished. They don't get hit. They don't get yelled at if they express disagreement. But again, it has to be in a civil manner. They can disagree. No backing down. There is some research on beginning teachers who fail to establish good discipline in their classrooms. There are a number of reasons, and we'll talk about some of the more important reasons later on, but one characteristic they have is they tend to back down. They set a standard or expectation, or they give instructions, they don't get compliance, they may get disagreement, and they back down. It's important to be careful about what you tell kids to do. Sit down, get out your books, face the front, whatever. Whatever you tell them to do, because pretty much once you set that expectation, either for this moment or permanently as a rule, you cannot back down. So no backing down. If it's time to sit down and pay attention, that's what you have to do. If it's time to come in for supper, you pretty much have to not back down. Clear statements of expectations. Effective parents, effective teachers, give real clear statements of expectations. A good question at any time, does this kid know what he or she is supposed to be doing or not doing? And you don't make any assumptions. Like you don't assume that the child just ought to know that. Second graders might ought to know uh, not to chew food up in the lunchroom, face each other, and open their mouths. Ew, gross. Uh, 
you think, well, they know, guess what they do at home with their siblings? So clear statements of expectations for behavior. But once they've got those clear statements of expectations, you follow through, you don't back down, and you enforce your expectations. So clear expectations. Following through. Those beginning teachers who back down sometimes also do not follow through. The two things are related. If I tell you this is my rule or this is my expectation at the moment and then you don't do it but I get distracted and I wander off over here and I don't follow through you get the idea that my expectations and rules don't matter. I don't mean them. So follow through is very important for communicating to children that you mean those expectations and that if you do not get compliance, if you do not get appropriate behavior, you will follow through. Okay? Now we're going to talk about acceptance and warmth. Facial expression can often communicate acceptance and warmth. It's very important for parents and teachers to make their facial, to watch their facial expressions, to be sensitive to them, and make sure they send the message you want to send. If you say kind words to another human being, but have a hostile, angry expression on your face, the human being picks up the facial expression that's what they believe, not your words. So a pleasant facial expression can show acceptance and warmth. Tone of voice, same thing. Experiment you can try is when you talk to somebody on the phone and they can't see you, try smiling while you talk. People can tell from your voice if you're smiling while you're talking to them and it improves the tone of voice you have. A pleasant tone of voice. Body language. Um, orienting towards a child, back to the eye contact, uh, communicating acceptance and warmth through good body language. Touch. Now I do get some uh, pre-service teachers now and then who say, you cannot touch children. Uh, yes, you can. You have to do it in the right way, appropriately and uh, make sure that you, whatever is appropriate in terms of touch, that it's something you give all children, not just the ones you like, not the ones, just the ones who are attractive. Uh, for example, the pat on the back, uh, the touch on the shoulder. You do not need to do this big showy arm hug with your kids, you know, hey, or, or uh, the little guys, you don't need to pick them up and have them in your lap after some point when they are plenty old enough to sit in the chair beside you. So uh, appropriate touch can communicate acceptance and warmth. Direct statements. It's important to say to kids things like, I like you. Uh, you're a good kid. You need to be careful that you don't just give a lot of empty praise. 
that you give meaningful praise and meaningful statements of acceptance and warmth. Every kid needs to be told, hey, you're a good kid and I like you. That's good. That's fine. But it is also necessary and effective to say things to kids like, I saw what you did for so-and-so on the playground. That showed a lot of kindness, and I'm really proud of you. So direct statements that have some meat in, in them saying good, positive things to the kid. Um, hey, you know, I'd like you even if you weren't my son. So direct statements. Listening. Again, I'm not talking about uh, listening to the uh, arguing on and on and on and on, but listening to what kids have to say. Very hard for adults. I think parents, all of us get into the uh-huh mode, uh-huh, uh-huh. The kid is sitting there, you know, sitting there saying nah, 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 about his day going on, and you're tired and you want to read the paper or whatever, and you say uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And the kid says things like, I chopped off my left foot today, Mom. And you say, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But trying not to do those things, finding times when you can give the kid direct attention, and the same thing in a classroom, actually listening to what the children have to say at the right time. Now, some students will want to talk to you about their life and stories and tell you things when you're trying to do things like have class. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about listening to what kids have to say, being interested in them, and at the right time listening and giving good attention to them. And believe me, they can tell. Uh, considerate treatment, back to politeness, uh, treating kids decently, treating them well. Now, respecting autonomy has to do with recognizing the kid as an independent human being separate from you. Once in a while, we have a parent come to orientation uh, with a student. Now, this would be an 18, 19 year old freshman about to move into the dorm or whatever and go to college. And the parent will say, she's going to be a pre-med major or she's not going to be a teacher ed major. Parents who will actually tell their children this is what you're going to major in, this is the job you're going to get, this is what you're going to do for your life. And you'll have some who say you will be a school teacher. Those parents are not respecting their child's autonomy. What you've got is a person who's making the transition from child to adult over the space of four or five years. That job is going to be what they do for the rest of their life, not you. And it's time to respect the child's autonomy. They need to make that decision. They need to discover what their talents are, what they're interested in, and what they want to spend some passion and energy pursuing for the rest of their life. So that's a good example of not respecting a child's autonomy. You respect the child's intelligence. You act like you think the kid has some brains, although sometimes you really wonder. You still act, this kid's smart, okay? The kid can figure things out, the kid has a brain. 
Sometimes you just want him to use it. You respect the child's integrity. You don't, with, unless he's giving you cause to think otherwise, you don't be suspicious. You don't uh, assume he's going to lie, cheat, and steal, whatever. You respect his integrity. Child can make some decisions. Adults get all messed up, and we'll talk in more detail later about what decisions a child can and can't make. And bless their hearts, some folks just start treating a child like an adult about the time he's three years old. Uh, big mistake. How do you figure out what decision a child can make and cannot make? A good rule of thumb. Are you willing for the child to take the consequences if he makes the wrong choice? If the answer is no, then you don't let the child make the decision. You don't pretend he can make the decision and assume that he's just going to automatically do what you want. Uh, many an adult has done that and discovered the kid says, um, oh, oh, yeah, oh, no, I don't think my bedtime ought to be 9 o'clock. I think it ought to be midnight. You do not let the child make the decision if you're not willing to let him take the consequence. You don't let a three-year-old or four-year-old or even a even a twelve-year-old decide whether to brush his teeth on a regular basis or not, because you are not willing to take the consequences and you're not willing to let the child take the consequences. So, child can make some decisions. Which ones? The ones for which you think and you're willing to let him take the consequences. Child can take the consequences. Okay, if you let him make the decision, you need to let him make the take the consequences. Child can disagree. We've mentioned that before. Child can express disagreement. Child is generally accountable, but he's not under a microscope. You don't micromanage the kid either your own kid or the kids in your classroom. He's accountable, but you don't have to supervise him every little teeny moment. Um, parents and teachers need to provide explanations. Now this is not the same thing as arguing with the kid. You don't have to convince the child that dental hygiene is important, but you do have to explain why you expect him to brush and floss, brush, you know, like two or three times a day and floss every night. You, again, you don't have to convince him. You do need to have to give him an explanation. That's recognizing that he has a brain and he can understand. Uh, same thing for uh, kids in your classroom. You can explain why the child needs to take um, arithmetic and learn long division. Here's, you know, here's what you do with it. Again, you don't have to convince him. He doesn't have to believe you, but you need to explain why you ask the kid to do what you ex expect him to do. So parents provide explanations as opposed to because saying because I said so. Now there are times in your life as a parent and a teacher when those argumentative kids will just get you to the point where you say, 
you provide the explanation, they question it, you provide the explanation, they question that, and you can get to the point where you just say, because I said so. But you don't go there without at least trying to provide some explanations. Simple ones. How firm is firm? Now, I'm going to go into um, another part of this lecture and I'm going to stop for a minute and come back and start with this again. Can you stop right there?